0: A successful transition of care process that starts with good planning and communication is essential for quality and prevention of unnecessary hospital readmissions. Aging services professionals understanding multi-setting hospital readmission measures, the importance of identification of change of condition, and best practice approaches can lead to better outcomes, especially for older adults. Hello and welcome to the Comfort Connections podcast. In this episode, Strategies for Quality Transitions of Care, we are joined by a panel of aging services professionals, including Sharon Holmes, Clinical and Compliance Specialist for Comfort Care Home Care, Sula Grange, Chief Nursing Officer for Pathway Health, and Stephanie Vijbitska, Manager, Strategic Health Programs, Comfort Care Franchise Systems, LLC. Let's listen in as they share insights, resources, and best practice strategies for quality transitions of care.
1: Well, good afternoon. I would like to welcome you all to this presentation, Strategies for Quality Transition of Care. So we know that a successful transition of care process that is with good planning and communication is really essential for quality today and for prevention of unnecessary hospital readmissions. And today, this dynamic group presentation and discussion will touch on multi setting hospital readmission measures, the importance of identification of a change of condition, as well as best practice approaches that can lead to successful outcomes when it comes to transition of care. So, a few housekeeping items today. In order to receive continuing education for nurses, you will need to attend the entire presentation and then you will need to complete the evaluation that will be sent to you um, by the email that you provided at registration. And during the presentation, if you have questions, please feel free to post those questions in the chat box, and then we will address those at the end of the presentation. So I would like to introduce our speakers for today. First, we have Sharon Holmes, Sharon is a registered nurse with an MBA in healthcare administration, and Sharon has over 27 years of nursing quality and compliance experience in hospitals, home health, hospice, and home care settings. Sharon currently is the clinical and compliance specialist for Comfort Care Franchise Systems, LLC, where she assists franchisees with the development of policies and procedures training resources, as well as providing additional ongoing support. When Sharon is not providing exceptional support, she is spending time with her husband of 50 years, her grandchildren, and her dogs. I am also introducing myself. I am Sue Lagrange, and I have had the pleasure of over 30 years of long-term care leadership experience, which I've had the wonderful opportunity to assist organizations in regulatory clinical and operational turnarounds and in my past 20 plus years with pathway health services i have assisted quality improvements in a multitude of organizations and i am also a national trainer in infection control clinical management restorative nursing and i am a certified interact champion master trainer and last but not least i have the pleasure to introduce stephanie Vizbitska. Stephanie is the manager Strategic Healthcare Programs and has been employed with Comfort Care Franchise Systems, LLC, an in-home care agency with 275 locations in the United States and Canada for 19 years. She is responsible for developing and managing various company programs that are aimed at improving client care and health-related outcomes. Numerous in-person visits to facilities, hospitals, and senior living in their home has allowed her to understand and experience the unique needs of professionals and clients firsthand and as a result has the unique opportunity to develop programs that can help older adults and their families live their best life possible. So with that, I would like to start the presentation. So healthcare entities across the continuum, as we know, are acutely aware of the need to reduce readmissions whenever it is safe and possible. And there are many reasons why reducing readmissions is so crucial today because of patient outcomes, quality, physical, and psychosocial concerns, as well as stress and the cost of readmissions, which has been, of course, as you all know, one of the drivers of the value-based measures that have been put in place across the continuum. And I believe that most healthcare professionals can agree that if a hospital readmission or even an original hospital admission can be prevented, it is essential for quality outcomes. Clinical readmission risks can include delirium, polypharmacy, falls, even take a look at things such as incontinence, catheter use, or hospital-acquired infections, and then we can even look at om- mo- immobility or skin integrity concerns and more. So a good evaluation and management of potentially preventable conditions will really be essential for healthcare providers today. Managing conditions such as COPD and heart failure, diabetes, and more will be other key components because those components are important for prevention. That will be our key. Another reason quality managing is important is that the key continuum partners will want to collaborate and work with organizations that can prove they have good systems that lead to good outcomes. And we know transparency with publicly reported data now provides all stakeholders the ability to objectively seek how organizations are faring when it comes to readmissions. And we have seen that even customers of healthcare are using data to make decisions. They expect better healthcare at a reasonable cost. So efforts by all have really steered the way to federal legislation and national strategies, as well as innovative healthcare delivery programs to change Um, payment methods. And this is why it is essential that all professionals in the care continuum can work collaboratively together. So CMS, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, back in 2012 started the Hospital Readmission Reduction Program, also known as the HRRP, that has evolved to include additional settings as we know it today. The program, according to CMS, is a Medicare value-based purchasing program that, for example, will encourage hospitals to improve communication and care coordination to better engage patients and caregivers in discharge plans and then in turn reduce avoidable readmissions. And the program supports the national goal of improving health care for Americans by linking payment to the quality of hospital care. So it started out as a condition-related or specific readmission measure for three conditions. If we can remember back then, acute MI or myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, and pneumonia has now evolved to a condition or procedure-specific 30-day risk-standardized unplanned readmission measure for acute MI, COPD, heart failure, pneumonia, coronary artery bypass graft or cabbage surgery, elective primary total hip arthroplasty, and or total knee arthroplasty. So the impact, as we know, is not just for hospitals. We have seen regulatory changes, new quality measures that the government, auditors, Office of Inspector General, and even the public are looking at. And the key to remember is that with healthcare reform, understanding data is essential. So for skilled nursing, The Skilled Nursing Facility Value-Based Purchasing, or also known as SNF-VBP, evaluates Skilled Nursing Facility on their performance on the SNF 30-day all-cause hospital readmission measure. And incentive payments are earned based on that performance. And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services withholds 2% of the facility's Medicare fee-for-service Part A payments to be able to fund that program. And for home health, home health has claims-based measures that address acute care hospitalization during the first 60 days of home health, emergency department use without hospitalization during that first 60 days of home health, and potentially preventable 30-day post-discharge, readmission, and home health within-stay, potentially preventable hospitalization. And even physicians and clinicians via the MIPS program, which is also the merit-based incentive payment system, in which the Medicare beneficiary is followed through the levels of care and the hospital readmission rates will impact the practitioner and their payment. And all of these measures essentially drive good transition of care and good collaboration. And post-acute care settings are seeing that over time, there has been a higher acuity of patient or client or resident that requires more complex care and needs. But we've also seen that in many instances, there is less reimbursement to care for that higher acuity. We also see a customer that has a much higher expectation for quality, right? And want to be more actively involved in their care and their services. And this is why organizations are looking at how they essentially do business, and how creative they can be with innovative ideas in the care and services that can be provided. So reducing those preventable hospital readmission really will come down to a good collaborative and coordinated approach with the entire continuum of care. And it starts when an individual is discharged from the hospital. So that complete and accurate information exchange occurs, as well as a thorough assessment and planning process, and then followed by that solid system to be able to identify early changes in condition, along with ongoing monitoring, education, and communication between that individual, families, or caregivers, and all of the healthcare providers along the way. Now, it sounds simple, However, even one break in that solid process, as you know, can lead to unnecessary hospital readmissions. So, it really is going to be up to all healthcare providers to understand the importance of the entire process in order to have success when it comes to those transitions of care. And so, we look at that impact to prevent that revolving door. Um, When it comes to the impact for the resident patient client, we know that quality transition of care is essential. Now, even in the best of situations, changes of condition or other instances can arise, right? But if the patient feels that if providers between the care transitions are working really hard to provide that good collaboration and they communicate well and have good processes, they will feel more confident in the care that is being delivered to them. And the healthcare professionals are including them in care choices in order to have those successful outcomes. And then, next, if we look at a successful relationship between providers, this is also a very important factor when it comes to care transitions because each entity of the healthcare team will have interest in those successful transitions of care. And each entity also prefers to work with other entities that can show objectively that they have good outcomes. Each partner of care will be expected to communicate and to collaborate together and have good systems in place because of the financial implications and the reputation between entities can be positive or Hopefully not, but it can be strained if there are significant opportunities for improvement for quality transition outcomes. And this leads us to the last area, which is the financial impact. And with that financial impact, we know that for private or governmental peers, the goal, of course, is to increase the quality of care delivered while reducing the cost. So as we have been for several years, moving towards that fee-for-service world to the value-based care world improving good collaboration and really striving for those high quality transition of care with good preparation good communication to help us realize value-based care that can be measured for good readmission outcomes and nearly 20 percent of patients experience adverse events within three weeks of discharge And three-quarters could have been prevented. And adverse drug events are the most common post-discharge complication. And so nearly 40% of patients are discharged with test results that are either pending or discharged with a plan to complete those diagnostic workups as an outpatient. And as many as 20% of Medicare patients are readmitted within 30 days of discharge. And what does that translate to? Poor transitions of care may cost Medicare as much as $26 billion each year. So, Sharon, can you share with us some root causes
2: of ineffective transitions of care? When we look at our clients, and as far as being admitted into a hospital, it's a constant revolving door, especially with individuals that have a chronic disease. When a patient is admitted to the hospital, the medical team, of course, is focused on their current admission and their current diagnosis. What are the missing factors then? We're looking at an absence of a comprehensive risk assessment, not knowing the whole patient. We need to have the pertinent information. Just because they're admitted at that time for something specific, there is something probably underlying that we should know about. The communication gaps. The information is not flowing to all the appropriate individuals that need that necessary information. We have patients and families that are excluded from the transitional planning process. When you look at how many pieces there are for when a client is admitted from the hosp- admitted to the hospital and then going home, whether it's to a rehab or to a home. What are all the pieces that need to be put together? Do the families really understand all the necessary pieces that, for that client to understand and also to have a successful transition? Patient education and as far as information overload, when you look at that, look at the patient in the bed. Look at where they're at right now. Sometimes they don't even know why they were admitted. Once they are there, and then they're being told they're going home. Think of how they feel in that bed. They all of a sudden were put in the hospital. Some of them really don't understand what's going on with the current diagnosis, especially if they're newly diagnosed. And then we're telling them all of this information we're giving them that they need to know when they are discharged from the hospital. It makes it really difficult for them to take all that information in and then expect that it's going to be a successful discharge. Lack of shared accountability in sending and and receiving our patients. Information received on both ends is extremely important and questions being asked to the family is even more important. And then timely follow-up, does that client understand that they have to have maybe a follow-up in a week or two weeks? And are they able to actually make that follow-up phone call with their physician or their primary provider? And then readmission acceptance, being readmitted again into the hospital, that's very hard for them because they don't understand why, again, are they going back in. And then the primary care physician, the gaps. Do we have the, do, does a primary care physician have all that information of when that patient was discharged? So this is Stephanie
3: and Sharon. Those are great points. Um, and I like to kind of define all of what you really described as an effective transitions of care. And the result of that as a Swiss cheese model in healthcare. Some of you may have heard this, but if you can imagine a slice of Swiss cheese with the whole it, and if you were to put slices of Swiss cheese together just perfectly and align some of those holes, oftentimes what we find is patients can fall between the cracks, which continues to further this ineffective transitions of care. And that's ultimately where we see individuals being readmitted. And so where I like to see that there are challenges, there's always opportunities. So when we do look at reasons for hospitalization and readmissions, we also want to look at, well, not only based on what Sharon has shared, what are some of those correlations and some areas that we can identify to actually prove upon our discharge planning practice or whatever role in healthcare you play looking at what can we do in our role and not assume that the person that's going to be assisting my patient in that next level of care will take um, the time or opportunity to educate or bridge those gaps of communication. I always like to say that discharge starts at the time of admission. And I think that is so important to keep in the back of our mind, given the fact that some of our roles are limited in terms of time we can spend with patients, but if there's a way we could even invest an additional 30 to 60 seconds, five minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you are allowed can really make an impact. So we've already discussed a lot. So those top reasons for hospital readmissions um, with the Affordable Care Act and the, um, the the Hospital Reduction Readmission Act as well is obviously driving Um, and identifying it, helping us all identify, well, what are some of those top conditions that are leading to to readmissions in the first place that have already been cited? And then what can we do about it? So when I look at some of those top reasons, um, I like to also look at some additional causes. So, you know, a lot of what we have talked about translates into, you know, one in six older adults are on Medicare. So 65 and older are those that will be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. So that's what all those statistics mean. One in six. So why? So obviously the CMS has already helped us identify those seven leading conditions that are trackable, both by procedure and condition. There's a few others. It's also subsets that can occur within the hospital. Oftentimes we see folks that are high risk for readmission because of that and being discharged, maybe not at an appropriate time. We also see a lot of folks with respiratory conditions, um, infectious disease, and something else I wanna mention is falls. Falls is the number one leading reason for all hospital admissions into the ER and the second leading reason for hospital overnight stay. So a lot of times we see that individuals who are falling, root causes aren't always identified as to why it happened in the first place. Obviously given our role, whether we're in a hospital, short-term rehab or skilled home health, we're oftentimes there to treat the episodic event, um, address the injury, make sure there isn't infection. But there isn't always that time provided or allowed to go back to, you know, why did this happen? And do you know how to best manage this once you go home? So again, playing along the theme of communication. So when we look at causes and top reasons for hospital readmissions, I like to look at the correlation. So a lot of us have here have already mentioned some of them. But we do want to, again, continue to think about how many of our patients, whether they're in an acute or post-acute setting, have an inability to recite their reason for admission and then to who to contact after discharge if they have a question. I'm going to give you a great example. We could probably all write a book here. But um, I knew an individual who had a hip replacement. Part of their discharge instructions was to wear compression stockings. 23 hours a day with one hour for a break. So when I went to visit this person, guess what? Those compression stockings weren't on. In fact, they couldn't figure out how to get them on because they were so tight. They didn't feel good. And their leg was swollen. So I asked, you know, well, we need to call somebody. Who can we call? And this person said, I don't know. I said, well, where's your discharge paperwork? And they said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, did you get a folder? Did you get something? Is it yellow? Is it blue? So after a few, you know, seconds of going back and forth like this, we found it. I got the number and guess what? This particular discharge planner told me what the actual instructions were. So while this person could tell me that they were there for a hip replacement, which was elective, by the way, they couldn't tell me who to call if something was going in the wrong direction. Nor did they know that swelling was a sign of something that that, that was not appropriate based on the healing process okay so just something as simple as that can get missed we also know and we've, we've talked about this a lot is just the simple lack of understanding of how to properly manage a condition being in home care on the post-acute side I can't tell you how many clients we support that have diabetes it may have lived with it their whole life they can't still they still can't tell us sometimes what a normal range of what their a1c should be they sometimes can't tell us that maybe having Five small meals throughout the day can help um, level out blood sugars, is better than maybe one in the morning and one at night. And further, a lot of our clients with diabetes say they shouldn't eat carbs at all. And we all know carbohydrates are really important to help fuel our body and in moderation and choosing the right ones. So these are some really basic things that we see that's oftentimes missed. Now, we talk about transitions of care, we can't have a conversation like this without also having to ha- discuss social determinants of health. We know that there's a lot of discussion around, well, what are those socioeconomic factors look like? Like someone's education, what their family support looks like, their physical environment, which sometimes makes it hard for us given our role, especially if you're in a acute care setting, you don't always have that opportunity to get into that person's home, see how they're living day to day and what that environment looks like. A lot of times the social determinants of health, we also like to look at the health behaviors. How likely are they, or do they want to change? How likely are they to engage in some of the suggestions we're making? And then of course there's always access to care and quality of care. And what does that look like knowing that it's different for everyone? Now, one of the biggies is medication reconciliation. We all know when there is hospital admissions um, that oftentimes the second question that patients are asked is, what meds are you on? First question is, what insurance do you have? Second question is, what medications are you on? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I take something every day, but I couldn't tell you the formulary, and I can't tell you the manufacturer, but all those things actually do play a factor into someone being able to manage their condition properly and also being able to recite, well, what is that list on a family basis? Older adults may forget. So all of a sudden, while in the hospital, if they're there for a day or two, that hospital has to prescribe those meds based on what they have available in that system. Well, that older adult may forget a few. The hospital system may prescribe a few new ones. Now, all of a sudden, they're home, and they have to figure out what regimen do I take. Plus, those meds are in bottles, not compliance packaging to make it easy. So those adverse drug events can lead to those complications that we're talking about, just for that simple factor. We also see a lot of times with that gap with acute and post-acute services, sometimes even skilled home health that's being ordered isn't in the home until three or four days after home from hospital from being hospitalized. Maybe that patient is calling the primary care physician, but they don't have an appointment available. All of this translates into what I like to define as the inability to make informed decisions and to have the motivation to do so. Having a hospitalization like share and share, when you're in that bed, it's overwhelming. There's information overload. So sometimes I feel like older adults have the best intention, but they may not know where to start. They have a specialist who's visiting them in the hospital. They have the discharge team and who, you know, other services available, maybe nutrition. And so it makes it very difficult to discern, A, where do I start? And B, what is my best choice? If we give patient choice, which is so important, sometimes that in itself is overwhelming as well. So we like to break it down and focus on a lot of these things, as we've mentioned,
2: with really that communication and understanding client engagement, really at the forefront of these things. Stephanie, you talked a lot about as far as for the focus on the client needs, what do we need to do? We need to have proactive care, early detection, client education, and then developing a plan. As we all know, we need to know the client and we need to have their level of understanding for their health status. What is that client's baseline? What is their functional status? And in order to do that, we have to have all of four of these factors, and that will help to make a success for that patient when they go home. Thank you so much, Stephanie and Sharon, for sharing such great
1: information. So now we're going to focus on the next few slides on key strategies to reduce unnecessary hospital readmissions. So, competency on identification and management of an early change in condition will really be essential for quality, but is also a requirement for the regulations in certain healthcare settings. And when employees are trained and able to identify even those subtle changes in an individual's condition using a solid process to identify, communicate, and then evaluate the change, the nurse can then contact the clinician with that comprehensive information about the individual and then the clinician can make sound and informed decision making for next steps in order for that patient quality of care. So early identification of those changes can also many times prevent unnecessary hospital admissions or readmissions because there are times when that concern can be identified early And then managed before it becomes acute or so significant that the change will require a transfer to the acute care. And the earlier a change is identified, the sooner those interventions can then be implemented to, in many cases, prevent that condition from deteriorating to the point in which hospitalization may be the outcome. So now Stephanie will share some strategies to impact those transitions of care.
3: Absolutely. Thanks. So when it comes to supporting an individual going from one level of care to the next, the number one number one rule of thumb that I like suggesting or helping us all keep in the back of our mind is don't assume that our partners in care, as someone transitions from one level to the next, will address some of these known reasons for hospitalizations or rehospitalizations or even implement solutions. Anytime you have an, uh, an opportunity to provide a solution or use some of these suggestions, I always say, take that time to really do so. It's not just about reducing um, hospitalizations, but it's about helping folks feel better. We know when people feel better, they do better. So when we look at transitions of care, we've identified many reasons as to what is leading to those hospital readmissions, right? So I don't really need to cite those again. However, so what, What I do want to talk about is what does those solutions look like, right? So we know all of these challenges, like I said, we could all write a book based on what we've experienced. So what can we do about it? Well, the first thing I'd like to suggest is to identify a public domain evidence-based tool um, that can assist in guiding a conversation uh, with a patient who is about to be discharged. Um, personally, Comfort Care uses a tool called Boost. Boost is one of those um, transitions of care demonstration projects that was developed out of the Affordable Care Act. So way back when, um, before the CMS added additional um, reasons for readmissions and started holding hospitals accountable, um, through the Affordable Care Act is where we, we saw the impetus of all of this change, which was incredible. And at the time, hospitals were trying to figure out, okay, great in theory, what do I do? And so as a result, Project Boost was developed. A lot of us know the Eric Coleman model with four pillars, this Project Red, Star, all of which provide publicly available tools. Um, Best yet, they're also rooted in evidence. So you can rest assured that based on those tools, that they do have data associated with using them does lead to improved reduction of hospital readmissions. We personally like Boost because it walks a patient through all of the citeable reasons we know why someone could be readmitted. Okay. So that is a wonderful tool. If you've never seen it, just Google it. You can find it. The other aspect is using Teach Back. Now I am not a clinician. I just learned from folks like Sharon. And the powerful thing about teachback is it gives us better communication strategy which allows us to engage in a conversation that does not elicit a yes or no response If you're asking questions that tells you a yes or no, I do not believe that that is a good communication approach because it doesn't tell us that person's level of understanding of what it is that we are speaking about in trying to prevent that readmission so teach back is very important along with those educational tools looking at ways adult learners learn. We need to address visual, hearing, reading, and tactile. So as we think of different resources and tools, we wanna make sure that tools are easy to read and understand. Um, We also wanna make sure that it addresses our visual learners, something like a stoplight pad. Uh, We've used these for years and they're a great visual tool because based on a specific condition, we can quickly use it as an educational resource to help someone understand what is normal for that condition, what is not, given what a yellow or flashing uh, warning set signal might look like, and then red, which is when you do need to contact a um, healthcare professional or nine one one. I can't tell you how many patients I've even known or heard stories about where after surgery someone had a fever, and that they thought that was a normal part of healing. It was just our body's response trying to heal that fight. Well, no, it actually could be a sign of infection. So simple tools like that can really help individuals understand what is normal versus what are reasons to follow up with my healthcare provider. Now, the other thing we have to ask in using good solutions and questions and going back to social determinants of health, one of the things in asking about resources, transportation, food, again, asking not do you have food in your fridge, but how is food provided now? How do you get to the grocery store? How do you meal plan? You understand that, What can you tell me what a low-sodium diet is like? So ask you more questions that's going to engage that individual. The other thing I love talking about, especially as we've been discussing medication reconciliation, is we all know that many older adults are typically on seven or eight more seven or eight medications daily, sometimes more. So how are we setting them up for success once they're home to ensure there aren't those adverse events that oftentimes they're experiencing? Can we provide them a pillbox while in the hospital? Can we contact the compound pharmacy provider, one of my favorite resources to provide? A lot of our older adults are very, very, um, let's say take a lot of ownership over their medications. All right. And I get it. Once you kind of get a medication regimen set, you don't want anyone to mess with it. However, if they're going to the pharmacy, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart every day or once a week or whatever it is, the question is, is that sustainable? Is someone really overseeing all of the medications you're taking? The answer is probably no. So if we can suggest a compound pharmacy, they exist pretty much in every corner of America. I need to just Google it compound pharmacy and put in your city and state. And what those pharmacy providers do is they will put those meds in compliance packaging and deliver them to the door. So, what we like to sell is convenience and the delivery is free. And the best thing is sometimes they can find discounts based on routine medications they're taking today. The other thing I like to suggest for some of the solutions, especially knowing what leads to those hospital readmissions right now, is the primary care physician. A lot of times we tell our patients, call your primary care physician. What do you think is going to happen as a result? Maybe 50% might do that. But if we can do that while we're in the hospital, why not? Or maybe you don't have the time. You can say, listen, while you're in your bed, I want you to call your primary care physician. When I come back tomorrow, I'd like you to tell me the date in which your appointment's been set. These are called goals that are measurable. They're helping us understand, are they taking ownership of the process. Do they have access? Do they understand? And at least in that environment, we can provide those safety nets that are needed for that person while they're under our care. The other thing I love when it comes to bridging the gap, um, as we mentioned on one of these slides that we all play a role, right? And trying to bridge um, clinical to community is that leaning on your post-acute providers, looking at adult daycare centers, non-medical home care companies, even some of your independent and assisted livings that may need to provide that additional level of support that somebody needs. So these are some of the solutions that we have found that it's pretty effective um, with most patients that are in the hospital study, um, that we also bring into our own practice as a non-medical home care provider.
1: Thank you very much, Stephanie. So another strategy to reduce unnecessary hospital readmissions is to have solid clinical systems with policies, procedures, and protocols that are reviewed and revised at least as needed or not less than annually to be able to provide staff with good direction. And then education at all levels on the roles and responsibilities from orientation upon hire. Then, to a regular basis for all existing staff, because it is important that staff are educated in their role when it comes to reducing unnecessary readmissions. It is also important that entities that use agency or temporary staff to have systems to provide education on policies and procedures as well as expectations, and then staff competence in identification and management of changes of condition. So even asking yourself, do you have a process to verify evidence of competency after the education is provided? Because in order to achieve quality outcomes, a solid process that includes educated and competent staff will really be essential, all the way from frontline caregivers understanding what signs and symptoms they need to report or be looking for to assessment skills of the nurses, understanding disease state management, and more. And then lastly, communication is vitally essential in all ways. Between the hospital and post-acute care setting, between frontline caregivers and nurses, between the nurse and the patient or resident or family or responsible party, as well as between the nurse and clinicians. And then of course, between the nurse and the hospital. So another evidence-based model across the post-acute care continuum is the Interact Quality Improvement Program. And this is a program that is a tested model that can assist with reducing unnecessary hospital readmissions and admissions by that early identification of those changes of condition, as well as a realistic process to assess manage, and communicate effectively using strategies, tools, and resources that are meaningful in addressing the change for quality outcomes. So the Interact strategies are to prevent conditions from becoming severe enough to require hospitalization, and that is through early identification and evaluation in those changes. And then, to manage some conditions without transfer whenever it is feasible and safe. It's also to improve advanced care planning and the use of palliative care plans whenever appropriate or as an alternative to hospitalization for some individuals. And then to improve communication and documentation within long-term care facilities and programs and between long-term care facilities in the acute care and then to integrate onto ongoing quality initiatives, such as QAPI. And then there are systems to embed into health information technology across care settings. And this quality improvement program is evidence-based. It is a model that can be accessed and used without a charge, that providers can use friendly, realistic tools and resources to assist with early identification, evaluation strategies, There are care paths, advanced care planning resources, and so, so much more. And the Interact Quality Improvement Program is designed for three different settings. For skilled nursing, there is a set of tools and resources and a program. There's another one for assisted living, and there's also a set for home health. And using a solid QAPI or quality assurance and performance improvement process will involve staff at all levels, To improve the performance and patient care. And it is essential when it comes to hospital readmissions. And this process can happen on a proactive basis to be able to identify areas in your organization where there are gaps in performance or if you've identified opportunities for improvement. So for instance, if you find that you've identified that 75% of hospital readmissions happen on a Sunday p.m. shift, Performing a good root cause analysis to identify the circumstances behind that readmission. Taking a team approach to look at, was there a change in condition noted soon enough? Are those changes identified later in the weekends? If yes, was a good evaluation or assessment completed timely? And was it complete? And then you can also look at, was the information provided to the clinician timely? And did all relevant information that was assessed even get communicated? And then you can ask, does the nurse communicate to the clinician not only the assessment information, but also strategies that can be done to manage the condition safely without transfer? And then was this all documented? You can also look at, is it the same nurse? Is it the same clinician? Are there adequate resources such as diagnostics, staff, equipment, or supplies? available to be able to actually manage the care without transfers to the hospital. And then are staff adequately trained to complete a good assessment process? These are all areas that can be investigated, and then the interdisciplinary team can work on solutions. So, sharing, can you discuss
2: QAPI a bit more in the next few slides? As Sue explained, quality assurance performance improvement. What is it? Who is involved? Everyone needs to be involved. As Sue said, from the top all the way down to even having a client involved. What we need to do is we need to assess the high-risk problem-prone areas, which are related to the care and services that are delivered, and then develop improvement plans. And as Sue said, I really like to look at opportunities rather than calling them deficiencies what do we need to look at we need to look at client complaints they can tell you a lot of information even though sometimes we take it as an actual complaint when you read between the lines and you go ahead and talk with these individuals it's not that it's just a complaint due to the food there are other things that are definitely that they want known to our staff incidents we want to look at the falls medication errors we all know how how important that is and what that can lead to in an adverse event for that patient and then rehospitalizations, client infections as we all know going through covid and now we're going into you know, an upsurge, and also we're entering flu season soon, and school started, so we need to really pay attention. Are there, are our patients getting their flu vaccinations? Client documentation is huge. If anyone has ever been able to do a chart review, it is unbelievable what you can learn. It's not only about the patient but it's also about the interaction of the staff that have taken care of that individual from the point of admission all the way through till discharge. Client satisfaction. We can learn a lot from what they have to say about their stay. And also when they come into home care, what are, what are some of their concerns? And then, of course, we always have other areas of concerns in the pertinent area of the whatever environment that you are in. You can go to the next slide. Here is a model. This is a plan, do, study, act. This is an actual performance improvement model that you can look at and see how you can develop a plan. What do we want to look at? We want to look at what trends are identified. So we want to plan it. What are we looking for? We want to look at who is involved. What is the team that's going to be involved in this? What are we actually looking at? What areas are we identified? And where? Where will this take place? And when, when are you starting it? And when are you ending it? Usually when you start a performance improvement plan, you want to have at least three months worth of data and then be able to review what you've started. And then why? Always drill down to the why, not the first why, not the second why, the third or the fourth. What is the real reason? What really happened for this Process to become deficient. The do, implementing the plan. Who is involved? When you're actually doing the plan, educate the staff. Everyone has to know that there is now a new plan in place. Because the thing is, if there are only part of staff knowing about it, they are trying to put it in place, and then the other half still doesn't know. You need to have everyone involved. And then as far as the protocols and the best practices need to be implemented when you are doing this. And study, okay, we're going to now, we've done all this for the past three months, we're going to review our data, go back and look at it. Where is our percentage? What goal were we trying to meet? And where do we want to be now? We have to revise the plan. You have to go back to all the same steps from the very beginning to be able to make sure that you have everything that you want within this new plan. You have to again re-educate. It does take time. It's very time-consuming, but it's an opportunity for everyone to see the improvement. And I've seen where Once an improvement has been made, how well everyone accepts that. And then of course, act. And what are we going to do when our goal is met? Are we going to review it again, maybe in another three months? Or again in another six months? You have to set another plan. You can't just drop it. Otherwise what's going to happen is as we all know old behaviors and set in again and we don't want that we want to be able to move forward with everything that we have just developed
1: so the key to a successful meaningful care process is to include and engage the resident patient or client and family or responsible party to be able to identify what are their goals and preferences and desired outcomes And engaging the individual will really allow for that clear interpretation of what they understand about their health status, as was mentioned before earlier, um, and what areas they choose in the event of a change of condition, and as well as providing an opportunity for the healthcare professional to educate and explain health information, such as advanced care planning. So, Stephanie, can you share with us a little bit more on client engagement?
3: Um, And I do want to sort of address one of the comments or questions, I guess, that came in from the audience and saying that sometimes family members aren't always available or engaged, or the patient doesn't want the family to be involved. (laughs) So we do rely on the families a lot, but when they aren't available, let's start with the client themselves. An individual does need to feel empowered to understand their condition and understand how to best manage it. So it really does start by engaging the person themselves. And this is a really important um, aspect in care. When we think about what resources do they need once they go home, um, what is their understanding of their condition and what is their motivation in managing it in a different way or in those early days of being home so that their condition doesn't get worse and gets better. So one of the things that we do like to recommend and have had some training on is something called motivational interviewing. Uh, Much like that boost tool I had mentioned, motivational interviewing does help to guide healthcare professionals in, in, in engaging the person in a meaningful conversation that addresses education and also identify what are those goals and how can we engage a client that's best suited for them a lot of the motivational interviewing techniques rely on helping someone go from a self-defeating type thought process to a self-motivating one. Um, So that's important along with understanding just what those supportive services uh, are needed. Sometimes based on the admission of hospital, um, so really for the purposes of this webinar, right? We're talking about actual admissions overnight stay. Um, but given the fact that they might be more in observation, they may not have as many access to resources that the hospital can initiate. But sometimes the primary care physicians can, through physician order and then engaging with a skilled home health provider, to sometimes get those additional resources. When families are involved, obviously, they become a key integral partner in care. With good patient-centered care techniques, obviously, we are putting the client at the center of everything we do, um, oftentimes with the family if they're available. And if they're not, that's where the role of a non-medical home care provider comes into play. Because oftentimes, we can be that cheerleader. We can be that support system. We can be that safety measure that oftentimes these individuals need so that Again, they're feeling better. They understand our discharge instructions and have a resource to turn to should things change. The other thing that I like to include besides just much of what we've already talked about with education and teach back and visual aids is helping to develop a plan with that individual while they're there. That boost tool can help Um, But if you have access to other resources through those transitions of care programs or models, or if your hospital system has one, that could become really a useful area to consider when it comes to not only how we engage someone appropriately, but what is the plan? And part of that plan could include following up after discharge. Many hospital systems now do have hospitalists or transition of care specialists who will call an individual. And in fact, there are studies that show that just a single phone call, sometimes five or 10 minutes, in the first three days of discharge can make a significant impact on reducing hospital readmission. Because we know that once someone goes home, that's where everything starts to kind of unravel. Someone isn't quite sure whether they should take their medication at three o'clock or four o'clock. Sometimes they skip it all together. Sometimes if there's a surgical procedure, like a total hip replacement, they're not sure if they should walk. It hurts too much, and they don't want to break their hip again. Or with a total with a elective surgery, they didn't break in, but they don't want to break that new hip. So then they stop moving because it hurts, and it makes them stiffer. And then we know that story. So if you can follow up within a few days, and then at day fifteen, and then again at day thirty, it's just making sure that that person feels supported, and if not, identifying the right solution for that. Obviously, this all is surrounded towards an individ- individualized care plan for an individual that always suited as best created based on their needs, those social determinants of health, and what their motivations are for managing their condition. So
1: as we get to the last section of our presentation today, we're going to be talking about best practice approaches. I had mentioned earlier the Interact Quality Improvement Program. Also, AMDA, American Medical Directors Association, has some resources. They have a clinical practice guideline on transitions of care. And then um, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, HRQ, also has a module on detecting changes in a resident's condition that can be helpful and assist healthcare professionals when it comes to really that identification and management of those changes. So, Sharon, You will be discussing now a best practice scenario.
2: We have a client who is 80 years old. She lives alone in her home. She has lived in that home for 60 years. She has no children, no external support, which has led her to increased depression and anxiety. She's not able to be with her, her friends and socialize. The client's diagnosis is heart failure, and she is at high risk for falls. She was recently discharged from the hospital due to a recent fall. She has been discharged with numerous prescriptions and no way to get them filled, and therefore, she has not followed her discharge plans. And now that puts her at increased risk for a hospital readmission. Prior to the recent hospitalization, the client mismanaged her medications, has, not had a, has, a, has had a history of not following up with her primary provider, and does not have healthy eating habits, which are contributing a contributing factor to her heart failure diagnosis. This, this scenario that I just gave you is an actual patient of mine many years ago. And this was before you were able to have transportation and Uber and all of these other great programs that were put in place. I went and saw her the day after she was admitted, uh, discharged, and she was sitting in a chair. She was crying. She handed me her meds. Her meds she handed to me in a Ziploc bag. All of them all just all mixed up. I take the red at this time. I take the green at this time. And not knowing what they were for, she was in definite need of help. When I asked her about her prescriptions and her her discharge diagnosis, it was funny because Stephanie has already said that. She said, I have no idea where the paperwork is. And then I asked her, how are we going to be able to get your prescriptions? I have no idea, but I don't have the money. So before I went in, I didn't take all of my medications. These are, these are true factors of individuals, and it's still today a very pertinent problem. So how can we help? Well, first of all, what we need to look at is, as Stephanie already said, discharge starts at the time of admission. Working with a community-based partner, you're able to have that nurse go into the actual hospital work with a discharge planner, and understand the specific needs of that client prior to obtaining the discharge papers. What can they do? They can do a comprehensive assessment. Yes, it's in the hospital. It's not in the home environment, but yet they are getting to know the client in their current condition. Development of an individualized care plan They can see what the client currently can do. What is their functional status at the time of being in the hospital? And as Stephanie mentioned many times, interviewing them. When you were at home, what were you able to do as far as for your personal care, as far as your mobility, and then as far as light housekeeping? And were they able to cook a meal? Most individuals, especially individuals with heart failure, you open up their freezer and it's filled with frozen food. Why? They are fatigued. They don't have the energy to be able to stand in a kitchen and cook anything. And nothing sounds good to them. Nothing at all. So when you look at that, how can we make it successful? Well, you partner with an individual such as a home-based, and you're able to facilitate a successful discharge. And then one last piece I already mentioned about. This individual that I gave you the scenario about didn't have transportation. Well, now, of course, we have Uber. I know. I've seen patients go home with Uber. And then what? If we're partnering with somebody, the home care provider is able to facilitate that transportation for them and make it a lot easier. When we move on to education, education is so important for that client. When you're looking at a change of condition, this is the problem, though. If you have a client who has been ill, a lot of times they can't tell whether they're in a decline. They just know every day they're more tired. They can't get up. It's really important after they've been able to be out of the hospital and explain to them and the family or if there are any other support for this individual, what is a change of condition? Well, one place to look at, we have to define the baseline. The baseline for that client is not the same for you and me. We have to know they are physical, they're functional, cognitive. Any of those three changes can also lead to a change in behavior. And how to identify it? The individual, if they're living alone, definitely needs support. And then what is the protocol? Are there steps to take? Moving on to the med reconciliation, it's really important that you obtain a full medication history. It's impertinent that we identify patients that may be at high risk for medication-related adverse events or or not adherence. Look at, we all know that sometimes Individuals will have polypharmacies. Reviewing the medication history against the active medications is important. Yeah, so in
3: summary, uh, I know we're running out of time here. Um, you know, a lot of these challenges um are oftentimes experienced in the home. Once that person goes home, right? Hospital's is a safety net, they're home. This is where we see the unraveling. So the number one suggestion we have, and it's not just because I work for a home care company, is to literally find a home-based community partner. Because home care is proactive care. We can help recovery become more manageable. I said this, I'll say it again, people who feel better, do better. Um, I know that one of the main things I get is, is this covered by Medicare? And the answer is no. But guess what? We don't have to worry about authorizations and we can even pick that patient up and get them home. He gets really creative when it comes to flexible services and staffing, whether that's just short term for the recovery period or based on someone and what they can afford. We're going to do our best to provide them what they need, even if it's for a very short period of time. Simple, sometimes we even supplement our care with technology. So, home based community providers like home care, perfect. Sometimes, if that's not appropriate, Adult daycare centers can also play a role given eligibility. So that is what I wanted to share in terms of home-based community partners.
1: So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of you for attending. I know that we did have some questions. I know, Stephanie, you answered one of those um, along the way. I do want to take the opportunity to let you know that the slides will be available on the Comfort Care website at the link that was listed in the chat box and the evaluation will be emailed to you at the email address that you registered with uh, for the presentation today please be sure to fill that out in order to get your continuing education for nurses and again i thank you for attending and the speakers thank you very much
0: thank you sharon sue and stephanie for sharing your insights and best practice considerations for aging services professionals Listeners, visit ComfortConnections.com to download complimentary resources, view show notes, and access our episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app. Thank you for listening and helping older adults live the best life possible.